Thank all of you. It's good to be back with you this week. It's good to see all of you. And uh, let's dive into the Word tonight. Uh, I want to begin, even though we're continuing our study of 2 Corinthians tonight, before we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight, I'd, I'd like to begin in Acts chapter 28. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 28. The book of 2 Corinthians is a book about getting a second wind from God. And though we've pretty much been going through the book looking at how we get a second wind, uh, tonight it's a little bit different. As Paul gets towards the end of the book, uh, he begins to give us even a, a personal testimony of why in his life a second wind was so important and why a second wind in our life as a follower of Christ is important as well because really we're all following the same calling in in a general sense uh, as a Christ follower. And uh, Paul sets it up. What what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 10, he, he very well sets it up for us in a warning that he gives in Acts chapter 28. Now, he gave this warning to the Ephesian leadership of the church at Ephesus. But the same thing was happening in Corinth and happening in Philippi and happening in Colossae and Galatia. Every region that Paul had planted a church, every church that got going... They were dealing with the same issues. And so what Paul articulates in Acts chapter 28 was also happening in Corinth. And it's one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And it's one of the reasons why Paul is reminding us through the things that he dealt with of why getting that second wind every day from God is so necessary. Because Paul, like all of us, we're going to face opposition as we serve the Lord. We're going to face obstacles as we serve the Lord. We're going to face spiritual warfare as we seek to serve God. We're going to be misunderstood when we serve the Lord. And there are going to be those who may even, in a sense, judge us, thinking that they know the situation and they they know us when they really don't. And these are all things that any servant of God is going to have to deal with throughout their life. And Paul talks about this tonight in 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. But before that, notice what Paul begins to say in Acts chapter 20. I'm sorry, I said Acts 28. I I apologize. It's Acts chapter 20. I'm already off track. See? Wow. Didn't take me long. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Paul says, For I did not hold back from announcing to you the whole purpose of God. Here's Paul's warning. Watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God that He obtained with the blood of His own Son. I know that after I am gone, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Even from among your own group, men will arise teaching perversions of the truth to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, be alert, 
remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears. And now I entrust you to God and to the message of His grace. And don't miss this next phrase. This message, the message of God's grace that you and I hold in our hands tonight, is able to build you up. Don't forget that. This message of God's grace to His people is what builds us up. If we want to be built up, we will immerse ourselves in the message of God's grace. He goes on to say this message is not only able to build you up, but also to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This was Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders, but it, was, it would have been just as true for him to direct this message to every church that Paul ever planted or dealt with. Because the same things happened. And it was what was happening in Corinth that there was a group of false teachers who were trying to undermine Paul's ministry and what Paul had done in Corinth. And so they were coming in, and if you want to turn there, we we go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And basically, they're trying to turn the church in Corinth against Paul because they're trying to gather a following of people to follow them and not Christ. And therefore, Paul has to deal with it. And not only does he have to deal with it, but again, don't forget that the main reason I want to share it from this perspective tonight is that this is another reason why Paul is saying that he had to allow God to continually renew him because of all the things that he had to deal with as a servant who was just trying to do what God had called him to do. One of the things that came up in Corinth through the false teachers was that Paul was weak. That, that Paul certainly sounded pretty, pretty strong in, in his letters. But, but when you got Paul in person, if you hung around Paul, there was nothing intimidating about him at all. And, and in a sense, what they were doing is they were, they were looking at the way Paul pretty much lived his life and they were judging who Paul really was by saying, well, because he normally behaves like this, that's the way he is, and he's, he's a pretty weak individual. He's not somebody that you're going to want to follow. Notice what Paul says beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Now I, Paul, appeal to you personally by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Because that's what he was being accused of. Weak. And I who am meek when present among you, but am full of courage toward you when away. And if you ever wonder if there's any sarcasm in the Bible, here it is. And so he even goes on in verse 2 to say, Now I ask that when I am present, I might not have to be bold with the confidence that I expect I will dare to use against some who consider us to be behaving according to human standards. Paul's saying, look, yeah, I normally act this way. I normally interact with other human beings this way, but please don't make some kind of judgment that I'm weak. If I have to play hardball, I'll play hardball if I'm forced to play hardball. And don't think that by looking at me a certain way that, that somehow that, that 
is communicating some kind of spiritual weakness. Paul says, far from it. In fact, Paul says the, the, the meekness and the gentleness that he talks about in verse 1 was also demonstrated by Christ. Does any of us think Christ is weak? And I think, too, we need to take time to define what these terms are because they are misunderstood. Many people think that the concept of meekness equals weakness. And it doesn't. Meekness simply is defined as power under control. Power under control. Maybe Paul wasn't as assertive and aggressive as the type of leaders that they were used to, but that didn't mean he wasn't following Christ and doing what God called him to do. In fact, he was following the example of Christ when he was meek. Jesus Christ had all power because he was the very Son of God. He was the Almighty God, but he always kept that power under control. That's a meek person. One who even has position and has authority and whatever, but they keep it under control. They don't use it in any way to, to harm others or to even build themselves up. That's a meek person. A meek person is also a considerate person. Considerate of others' feelings and, and considerate of, of others and where they are in life. Again, even in Paul's day, in that culture, being considerate could be interpreted as a pushover, weak, because you're considering the feelings of other people. Paul said, I'm just following the example of my Lord Jesus Christ, who was meek. And then, gentleness. What's it mean in Bible terms to be gentle? It means to be kind. Jesus was kind. It means to be reasonable. Jesus was a reasonable individual. Paul was a reasonable individual. And as far as leadership and authority goes, it also means this. When one is a gentle leader, one is lovingly leading the sheep from in front rather than driving the sheep from behind. In fact, if you study shepherding in that part of the world, that's the way shepherds manage their flocks. That's why leaders could always see, based upon how the shepherds took care of their flocks, how they were to take care of their sheep or flock. Now, in other parts of the world, if you study shepherding, there are other parts of the world where the shepherd will drive the sheep from behind. But in the Middle East... When they shepherd, the shepherd is out in front leading the sheep, leading them, not driving them. And that's also implied in that concept of gentleness. So Paul says, don't make any mistake. If you're judging me as being meek and gentle, I'm only following the example of Christ because in verse 1, he was meek and gentle. But again, if you force me to play hardball with you in Corinth. I'll play hardball if I have to. I don't want to. But I will if I'm forced to. Which is why he says what he does in the first two verses. And what I want to do tonight then is also share with you some other contrasts between Paul 
and the way he dealt with people and the way he dealt with them in Corinth and the way the false teachers were dealing with them. And Paul is simply saying, here's also why I have to allow God to continually renew me. Because I'm always being questioned, I'm always being criticized, and there's also that pressure from others outside to conform to the way other people do things rather than the way I know God wants me to do things. And Paul says the only way you and I are ever going to stay on track for God and do what he wants us to do rather than to listen to all the voices around us of what other people want us to do is by allowing God to continually renew us. So Paul says part of the difference is these false teachers are not meek and gentle. I am. Secondly, Paul also says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 10 that his discernment is not based upon outward appearances. For notice he charges them, you are looking at outward appearances. And we know that throughout the Bible, the Bible teaches us against making decisions and using discernment based upon outward appearance. You don't have to turn there, but in the story of of when David was anointed by Samuel in the Old Testament as the king of Israel. If you know that story, you know that God sent Samuel to anoint one of the kings or one of the sons of Jesse. And David wasn't even invited because he was totally, you know, not even considered by his family as being having a chance at being the next king. So they began to pray all of Jesse's sons before Samuel. And Samuel looked at the first one and said, wow, this guy, he's a big strapping guy, pretty impressive. This must be the one that God wants me to anoint. And here's what God says to Samuel. Do not be impressed by his appearance or his height, God said to Samuel, for I have rejected him. God does not view things the way men do. People look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Paul was saying the same thing to the Corinthians. The reason why they had gotten themselves in the shape that they had spiritually and the reason why the false teachers were undermining Paul was because for them it was all about outward appearance, not reality, not substance. And Paul says, you need to quit looking at outward appearance. They even did this with him. If you go down to verse 10... Or actually, I'll look at verse 9 and then 10. Notice he says, I do not want to seem as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters. Because some say, verse 10, his letters are weighty and forceful. But his physical presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They're talking about the Apostle Paul. You hear what they're saying? Oh, his letters, they they pack a punch. But did you ever meet Paul? He's nothing in person. Paul says, you're judging me by outward appearance. It's not wise to judge by outward appearance. It's not wise to end up making a determination about something simply based on outward appearances. These were the things Paul was dealing with with the church at Corinth. Notice he even says in verse 8 of chapter 10 that God gave him this position and that he was to use this for building up, not for tearing others down. 
He says, if I boast somewhat more about our authority that the Lord gave us for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of doing so. I used whatever authority, whatever position, whatever power God gave me never to tear you guys down in Corinth, to build you up. But guess what the false teachers were doing? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and begin reading with me or following along with me in your Bible at verse 19. Here's how the false teachers were treating the Corinthians. And Paul says, and they were putting up with it. He says, for since you are so wise, and again, can't you just see the sarcasm dripping off the Bible at this point? Since you are so wise, you put up with fools gladly. For you put up with it if someone makes slaves of you, if someone exploits you, if someone takes advantage of you, if someone behaves arrogantly toward you, if someone strikes you in the face. To my disgrace, I must say that we were too weak for that. If you're calling us weak just because we didn't treat you that way, then I'm glad I'm weak. And, and, and Paul's like, isn't there an irony here? All we ever did was love you. All we ever did was share with you the truth. And yet we're the ones being criticized by those who are mistreating you. And guess what? You're following them. You're putting up with the abuse that they're giving to you there in Corinth. And they're leading you away from the solid spiritual foundation that Paul had laid years ago. Notice back in 2 Corinthians 10, 12 too, or 10, verse 12, he says, Stop measuring yourself by others. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, for we would not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who recommend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. No matter where we are spiritually, we can always find another Christian who's not where we are. And allow that comparison to keep us satisfied where we are. The only one we should compare ourselves to as Christians is Christ. And because none of us are where Christ is, that's what needs to keep us motivated and inspired to keep growing and keep allowing God to renew us. Because when we start comparing ourselves, oh, well, you know, I'm better than that Christian over there. All that does is completely diffuse and take the air out of our spiritual balloon, if you will. We're going to lose whatever momentum we have spiritually when we start comparing ourselves with other people. And Paul says, now the church in Corinth has become infested by that kind of attitude. Rather than every Christian in Corinth taking Christ as the example and pattern for their life. And then finally, talking about all this, in verse 18, he finally says at the end of the chapter, we did not seek the approval of men, but the approval of God only. He says, for it is not the person who commends himself who is approved, but the person the Lord commends. You and I then can begin to realize why Paul needed a daily renewal. 
I mean, he's out there on the front lines just trying to do what the Lord has called him to do, and yet constantly facing opposition, constantly facing obstacles, constantly being misunderstood, constantly being criticized. Guess what? Same, same thing happens to you and I. Same thing happens to you and I. If you and I are going to get serious about our relationship with Christ and we're, we're going to start following hard after Christ, we're going to start meeting opposition, obstacles. There's going to be misunderstandings. We're going to get criticism from all different areas. And who knows what we're going to hear. That's why we need to stay close to the Lord. Because if we don't, guess what? When we start to hear all that and face all that, we're going to get discouraged. Which was the main theme of 2 Corinthians. That God doesn't want His children to get discouraged, but to continue to receive that second wind so that they can keep on going even in the face of opposition and obstacles and misunderstandings and criticism and all of the like. And Paul is modeling that for us here. How easy would it have been for Paul to just say, I'm done. I'm done. And walk away. But God had made Paul strong. God had made Paul like a flint. And Paul wasn't going to back down. Paul was going to keep on going. And Paul is sharing all this with us. Not to draw attention to himself, but to use him as an example to encourage each one of us. That sometimes, when you and I make some kind of commitment to Christ and we try to raise the bar of our spiritual life, it's almost like our life gets harder. And, and if we're not where we should be or need to be or allow God to renew us, that can be a very discouraging moment when we're only doing what God is asking us to do And yet, all of a sudden now, all this stuff starts to flow our way. It would be so easy at that moment to say, I'm done. And Paul says, don't do it. Because the same God who strengthened me to face all the stuff that I needed to face is the same God who will work in your life to strengthen you to face all that you need to face as well. In fact, Paul, in this chapter, this great chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, after sharing with us his warning in Acts chapter 20 and his walk of meekness and gentleness and all this different, these different things, now wants to talk to us for a few moments about the warfare that he's engaged in. And notice he calls it a war. Look at verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 10. He says, though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. And then in verse 4, he uses that word warfare again. That's a pretty strong word. And yet that's how Paul looks at his life and ministry. I'm not saying anything to probably anybody here tonight that you already don't know, but we all as Christ's servants need to be reminded of it at times. That if we're going to serve the Lord, serving the Lord is not for the faint and weak. In fact, it's pretty ironic that, that they were accusing the Apostle Paul of being weak just because maybe physically 
or, or if you were around him, he wouldn't be this intimidating presence that would just like, you know. But he was strong. Because you and I all know that if we're going to serve the Lord, we're in a battle. We are in a war. Because we will face opposition, obstacles, and all kinds of things. And the word war or the word warfare in verse 4 means these things. It means that we are always on active duty, which is what the Greek word means. In other words, as a soldier of Jesus Christ who is engaged in this war, we always need to be on active duty. That there's never a day, a week, a month, or year where we can just sort of take off. Because the opposition doesn't take any days off. The obstacles keep on coming. The criticism will keep on flying. So every day that we spiritually take off, we only find ourselves maybe one day even further behind. Paul wants to encourage us here. Yes, encourage us by reminding us we're in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle every day. And it's all more the reason why Christians need to wake up and we need to truly get serious about our walk with God and and where we need to get into the Word of God and we need to allow the Spirit of God to renew us every day because what we're involved with, folks, is not for the weak and the faint of heart. The other nuance of meaning here of of the word war or warfare is that Paul is leading soldiers into battle. Basically saying, come on troops, there's a battle to fight. And here's what Paul says the battle is. Verse 3 and 4. The battle is is primarily a battle of preserving and promoting the truth of God. Notice what he says. Though we live as human beings, 2 Corinthians 10.3, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. We tear down arguments or speculations, or human opinions, and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. He's talking there about our mind, and our thoughts, and the truth that flows in. And and Paul is saying the primary battle and war that Christians are engaged in is a battle for preservation and promotion of the truth of God. Because from the time that God created human beings and placed them on this earth, in the Garden of Eden, there has been a battle for truth. If you and I go back and study Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and caused the fall of all humankind, that was a battle for truth. That was Satan trying to get Adam and Eve to question the truth of God. And when they began to question the truth of God, the downfall happened. And the same thing is true today. 
the battle has not changed in thousands of years. And I want to show you that tonight by taking you to several places in the New Testament. But before we do that, I want to stay here in 2 Corinthians for a moment. Notice over in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 and 4, where Paul expands on this in chapter 11. He says to the Corinthians, I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus different from the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it well enough. You just go along with it. There's no, whoa, whoa, whoa. They didn't realize they were in a battle. They were just naively and gullibly just following everything that they heard without using any kind of examination or discernment. And Paul says, folks, we're in a battle here. A battle for the truth. In that very same chapter, look at chapter 11, verses 13, 14, and 15. Where Paul says, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will correspond to their actions. Paul is calling on the church at Corinth and the church everywhere down throughout history to wake up. And realize that we have to continually allow God to renew us in order for us not only to have the strength for this battle that we are in, but to be able to have the discernment and spiritual insight that we need to be able to differentiate between truth and error. Jesus himself said to his followers, you shall know the what? The truth. And the truth is what will set you free. If we don't know the truth, or we've abandoned the truth, or we're not following the truth, then we're not going to be free like Jesus wants us to be free. We will have been made a captive of human philosophy or of satanic deception or something. And that's why even many Christians go through their whole life, some of them, tragically, captivated, by something other than the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's why they never find the freedom that God intends for His children to have. The only freedom that a Christian can have is when we're living our lives based on the truth. The truth. John said in 3 John, I rejoice to hear that my children are walking in truth. See, today we live in a culture in this world and even in Christian circles where there is this philosophy that we just need to love Jesus and love each other and that'll just take care of everything. Folks, that sounds really good, but that's not biblical. Because love without truth isn't going to work. See, if that be the case then we all know that the Bible clearly teaches in John 3.16 that God so loved the world. 
But we also know the truth of Scripture that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So even though God loves everyone, the only ones that have a relationship with Him are those who accept the truth of His Son, Jesus Christ. Truth is what dictates it, not love. And we've become very wishy-washy. We've become anti-doctrine. Doctrine doesn't matter anymore. The truth of Scripture doesn't matter anymore. Yes, it does, folks. It is only the truth that can set us free. And if we stop teaching and, and, and applying the truth and digging into the truth, we will miss the freedom that Jesus Christ came to give us. Turn over, if you will, to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the next to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. So it's pretty easy to find. Find Revelation and go back, because Jude is only one chapter, so it's not a big book. It's 25 verses. But it's an important book. In Jude, verses 3 and 4, here's what Jude wrote. By the way, for some of you that may be interested, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of Joseph and Mary's other sons after Jesus was born, when Mary was a virgin. Jude grew up with Jesus, and there was a time where he then accepted Christ as his personal Savior. Jude wrote this in verse 3 and 4. Dear friends, writing to the church, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation, and what a great topic, salvation, great. Nothing wrong with talking about salvation. But Jude says, I now feel compelled, and I believe it was through the leading of the Holy Spirit, obviously, instead to write to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith. That's the body of truth that God has deposited to His people, the church, that was once for all entrusted to the saints. See, God has always said to His people, I have entrusted you with the truth, but now you must, as my followers, take the battle and be willing to preserve it and promote it because it will be attacked. It will be twisted. It will be ignored. And so Jude says, Saints, you need to contend for this faith. For he goes on to say in verse 4, For certain men have secretly slipped in, into the church, among you, men who long ago were marked out for the condemnation I am about to describe, ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil, and who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Jude is saying to the church, Let's rise up. Let's take the battle. Let's fight for truth. Obviously, we live in a world today that doesn't even recognize absolutes or truth. Which all the more makes us as Christians standing up for God's truth pretty unpopular. But remember what Paul said back in 2 Corinthians 10. You and I aren't to live for the approval and popularity of people. We are to live for the audience of one. We are to live for the approval of Jesus Christ. We are to live such a life 
that when we see Jesus, we will hear Him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4 in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will desert the faith. Wow. That's sobering, isn't it? People deserting the faith or the truth. Occupying themselves with deceiving spirits and demonic teachings. Not to get into this tonight, but for several years I was a pastor, but I also deprogrammed people out of cults. If you ever study, and I don't mean to study what a cult believes, don't do that. (laughs) But if you ever study the kind of people that cults attract, you will find that the statistics are there. That most people who are involved in false cults and false religions have some kind of Christian background or Bible background. They are very vulnerable because they know enough To be dangerous, if you will, but they also know enough to be deceived. To desert the truth and the body of truth that God has entrusted to the saints and to follow deceiving spirits and demonic teachings. Folks, I didn't plan on one of the last times I'm with you it hitting on this, but it it certainly... I can share with you that this is part of the reason why I have the passion that I do to teach the Word. Because if, if this is true, if what we are reading here tonight is true, all the more reason why we need to get more people into the truth of God's Word. Look at 2 Timothy. Just over one book to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul's telling this young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the message. Be ready whether it is convenient or not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and instruction. For there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. And don't miss verse 4. And they will turn away from hearing the what? Truth. And they'll turn aside to myths. If the Bible is true, then all the more reason why you and I need to be renewing ourselves every day, allowing God to strengthen us, giving us insight into what the truth is, So that we can be His soldiers in this war that is going to exist until Jesus comes and sets up His kingdom for truth. Because this battle and this war, folks, has been existing ever since the Garden of Eden. And it will not cease until Jesus comes. In fact, I believe the Bible teaches that it's only going to intensify and get worse as human history rolls on. 
All the more reason why the church needs to know this truth and needs to be willing to contend for the faith and stand up for truth. And in order to do that, folks, we need to be strong. Because the minute we start to do that as God's people, we're going to face all kinds of opposition. We're going to face all kinds of obstacles. We're going to face all kinds of disapproval. Because it's not going to be popular. It's not always going to be politically correct. But it's the truth. One other passage as far as this goes. Turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. And the reason I wanted to take you to so many places just to share with you how prevalent this is in the New Testament. This isn't some minor message. This is a major doctrine in the New Testament for God's people. I'm going to begin reading in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 14 where Peter says, Therefore, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into His presence and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some things in these letters are hard to understand. Can I just tell you amen to that? First time I read that, I was like, oh, okay, then I'm not, you know. Because I, I hear Christians, man, the Bible, some, some places are really hard to understand. Even Peter says it's hard to understand. It is. It takes a little digging sometimes. It takes a lot of study sometimes to find out what even those hard-to-understand passages mean. But God's not going to lay all the gems right on the surface. God wants us to spend time digging. That's why the name of this Bible study on Tuesday night is pretty cool, The Mine. We've got to be willing to get down and get dirty, in a sense, in God's Word and unearth those, those riches and those gems that sometimes lay a little bit beneath the surface because some passages and verses are hard to understand. But notice he goes on to say, things the ignorant and unstable, meaning unstable spiritually, twist. See, twisting Scripture to fit what you want it to say It's been around for a long time. In fact, it's true that any person can take most of what the Bible says and twist it to make it mean what they want it to mean if that's where they're going with it. That's not why God gave us the Bible. But people will twist the Scriptures. And he says they also do the rest of the scriptures. Verse 17. Here's the key. These two verses. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard that you do not get led astray by the error of these unprincipled men and fall from your own firm grasp on the truth. And here's how you and I can do that. Verse 18 is the prescription. And if I could share one thing with you that you would remember years from now after I'm gone, 
that you can bring up. It would be 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the prescription for being led away and led astray and falling from our grasp of the truth is just continue to grow. The greatest antidote for this is just continued spiritual growth. Just keep growing. And the word grow there is in the continuous. It's like never stop growing in the grace and knowledge of God. Never. Keep growing. Spiritual growth can solve lots of problems in our life. Spiritual growth can help us overcome a lot. And one of the things that continued spiritual growth in the Scriptures will help us do is to stay strong for the fight that we are in and to help us have the discernment and insight we need spiritually to be able to differentiate what's truth and what's not truth. And and here's the thing. If you're a Christian... If you're a blood-bought, redeemed son or daughter of God, you're in the battle whether you want to be or not. And we need every person who knows Jesus Christ to be willing to get involved in this fight. See, the, the, the church not standing up for God's truth and fighting this battle would be like, some military operation going into a key battle with only half of its soldiers because the other half said, eh, we're not interested. You, you, you guys go in and you lay your lives on the line. We're just going to stand on the sidelines. How discouraging. And, and, and yet, flip that around. How encouraging is it When you and I see fellow Christians who are willing to stand up for the truth no matter how hard or how difficult, who have that that boldness and that courage and that strength that only God can give. I mean, we admire those people in the Bible. We read about someone like Stephen that wasn't going to back down and who literally was stoned to death because of his stand for Jesus Christ. And you read a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs and you read about the hundreds and thousands of Christian martyrs down through history who instead of renouncing the name of Jesus Christ and turning their back on the truth said, you can take my life. Or even someone like a David Wilkerson. Years ago in New York City when that gang came to slice him and dice him with their knives and he said, you can cut me into pieces and every piece will cry out, Jesus loves you. And instead of those gang members cutting him up and killing him, those gang members came to faith in Jesus Christ and became part of David Wilkerson's church there in New York City. See, we just need to have the faith to stand up for what God is telling us to do, and He will give us the strength to do it. He will give us the words to say. But we have to be willing as His church as Jude said, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because this is the warfare that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 10. So in closing tonight, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 10 for just a moment. 
We've talked about Paul's warning in Acts and Paul's walk in 2 Corinthians 10 and Paul's warfare. One final thing. Paul's weapons. Because we may know that we're in a war that God wants us to stand up and fight for the truth, but what are the resources, what are the weapons he gives us? Well, Paul reminds us here in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that the weapons for this warfare are not human weapons. You and I will not be successful. We will not be able to fight this battle or this war with some kind of human management skills and human ingenuity and human strategy and human strength and human wisdom and human intellect. No. Paul says our weapons are made powerful by God for for tearing down strongholds. Why? Because they're spiritual weapons. They're, They're not these conventional human weapons. They're spiritual weapons. And what are then our weapons? You know where I'm going probably. I'm going to close with this passage. The book of Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His power. I wish I could live that every day. That's easy to say. But it's much more difficult to practically apply to say when I get up every day, okay, Jeff, you're not living this day in your own power and strength. You you just need to start right out this day allowing God to strengthen you. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day. God's children should never retreat. We are the children of the Most High God. We have the truth. There should be no retreat in the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's time that the church rise up in the strength of God, with the Word of God, by the Spirit of God and stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and for His truth in God's strength. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day and having done everything to stand. Stand firm, therefore, by fastening the belt of truth around your waist, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by fitting your feet with the preparation that comes from the good news of peace, and in all of this, by taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. And I want to stop there. Because notice, up to this point, as Paul is sharing with us what the armor of God is that we are to put on every day, that up to this point, these are all defensive pieces. 
these are all pieces to protect our mind, the helmet of salvation. Our heart, the very center of our emotions and decisions. All the vital organs, physically and spiritually, God wants us to protect. And so these are defensive up to this point. But I believe there are two offensive weapons that God gives us in our arsenal. And I believe that these were primarily the ones that Paul was referring to over in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says, we do not fight this battle with human weapons, but we fight this battle with weapons made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. And there's only two offensive weapons in a Christian's arsenal. But these two are more powerful than anything on earth. The first, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the second one, prayer. Notice he begins in verse 18. With every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And to this end, be alert with all perseverance and request for all the saints. Pray for me also. Pray that I may be able to speak boldly as I ought to speak. Verse 20. Prayer and the Word of God. Weapons that God gives His church, His children, for the preservation and promotion of His truth. And there are no more powerful, mighty weapons in the world, in the universe, than the Word of God and prayer. And we as Christians, if we're truly serious about the calling that God has placed on our lives to be His followers, then we will be willing at some point in our journey with Christ to say, you know what? I want to enlist. I want to join. I've been a Christian I know my sins are forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven, but I've been sitting back on the sidelines watching other people in the church and other Christians fight this battle. I need to be part of the battle. I need to let God strengthen me so that I can get in there and so that the church can truly be this mighty army of prayer warriors And people who have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, that can bring down those strongholds of human philosophy and opinion that exalts itself, Paul says, against the true knowledge of God. Folks, all around this world, there are people tonight who are blind to the truth, totally deceived, totally living in darkness. But you and I have the answer. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have the weapons that can break through that darkness. Those weapons God has given to His church throughout all the ages. It's the weapons of prayer and the Word of God. We as the church We need to rise up and take our weapons and run to the battle. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for reminding us
of the warfare that we are engaged in. God, I just pray for each of us tonight that we here in this room know the truth that can set us free. And yet, Lord, how can we who have been freed by the truth of God look around at so many who are being held captive by sin and by darkness and by deception and not be willing to be part of the battle. Not be willing to take up the weapons of prayer and the Word of God and to stand up and to share the Word of God and to pray earnestly for the light to dawn and for darkness to be dispelled. God, use this message tonight, I pray, in all of our lives, once again, to remind us of what we're involved with. That this is not for the weak and faint of heart. This is for those who are allowing God to strengthen us every day in your strength and in your power. And God, I pray tonight that as we leave here, we will leave in your strength and in your power. And when we wake up tomorrow, that we will be clothed in your strength and your power. And we will be able to walk through the day tomorrow standing and not retreating. Go with us, God. Bless your people. Encourage us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I loved being here tonight. Just a reminder, next Tuesday, Pastor Lynn will be here, and then we will close out the semester at the mine on May the 4th. I will be back on May the 4th to share a little bit of a Bible study with you, and hopefully just to be able to say goodbye to many of you, and Maybe give you a hug if you're into hugging and that, because I sort of am. So anyway, I love you guys. Have a great night. We'll see you.